0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. I'm on with my sister, Debbie Shore, who's in our Washington, DC headquarters vicinity. Uh, Today we have a guest who's been a longtime friend and supporter of Share Our Strength, but more important, uh, an opinion maker in this country and around the world, George Stephanopoulos from ABC News. Uh, he's on good morning America and hosts this week on the Sunday morning news and current events show. Uh, but when we Google you, George, you know, what comes up former white house communications director. Is that who no, you're always I, really I, going to be?
1: I th- maybe, but I thought you were going to say something else because often when people Google me, the first thing that comes up is, uh, the Friends episode, the one with George
2: Stephanopoulos,
1: (laughs) (laughs) which I wasn't actually actually in, but it was when Friends first came out in 1994. And I'll never forget it. This is how old we are, Billy, but this is when I was White House communications director. And it was those days we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have obviously iPhones. We didn't have the internet. Um, So when I would leave the office at night, I would carry one of those beepers on my belt. And I was at the gym at 8. 30 I guess on a Thursday night and my beeper starts to go insane I thought oh my god is it a national crisis what's happening and it was all because this Friends episode that I had known nothing about where they were talking about me for half an hour was on the show and I knew at that moment um, that my life had changed for I probably knew that a little bit before that but also that Friends was going to be a big hit because everybody I knew was watching that show
0: (laughs) The (laughs) the power of pop culture
1: Right. But uh, you know, to answer your question, yeah. And that was, you know, and you know what it's like. We, we met when we both started out in presidential politics. Um, that's a peak experience in life. Uh, the chance I worked on Capitol Hill before I'd worked in the Dukakis campaign, which of course was a losing presidential campaign on the Democratic side, wanted to have another shot at um, trying for that, because I knew that, you know, for better or worse, the White House is the is really the seat of power uh, in, in our country. And um, to have the chance to be part of a campaign after 12 years of, of Republican presidents that was able to, to, to break through, able to win and then have the privilege of working in the White House, which is you know definitely high stress, definitely high pressure. Uh, I could argue by now looking back that perhaps in many ways I wasn't ready uh, for it. In some ways that could be an asset or, 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 or a burden. Uh, but there's no experience like it. Every single day you walk in to history. Every single day you're surrounded, at least in this White House, by a group of people who are about as smart a group of people you'll ever work with and about as well-informed a group of people you'll ever work with. And you have a chance at any given moment of the day to have an impact on our collective lives. And that's just that's just a great gift.
0: And, and whatever the most important thing going on in the world uh, is that day is probably something you're going to be working on.
1: Which is, and how lucky is that, huh? Right. I mean, who gets to do that?
0: And, and you know, it is, it is such a, you know, I just think of, you know, I, I was, Debbie and I are both involved in the unsuccessful presidential campaign of Gary Hart, uh, but even unsuccessful and not being in the white house, it was such a crucible and so formative of both of us and what we ended up doing with the rest of our lives and who our friends are and our relationships. And, you know, when you, when we get together with, you know, what we call the, the Hart family. Um, we, we always say we're, we're not just going to sit around and tell war stories all night. And of course, that's exactly what we do <laughs> there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's so money and I can't, I can't even imagine what it must be like um, for, for I, you and your former White House colleagues, I, because that would my, be even my, more intense.
1: And my campaign colleagues as well. I mean, like, like today alone, I've talked to uh, at least three former White House colleagues. Um, uh, there are probably not Ten days in the last thirty years, where I have not spoken to James Carville at least once. That day. Wow! Um, and you know, we 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 talk by the phone. It's almost always by the phone. Um, it, we sometimes the calls are as short as thirty seconds long, but it's just you know we were in that war room together. We were in that crucible together in the campaign. Uh, he obviously didn't come into the White House. Which was a key part of uh, of that world, and it's just something you. You never get over. I, I, I hesitate, even though we called it the war room, I hesitate to compare it to what people have gone through the military uh, experience. I mean, I obviously, didn't, I didn't serve in the military. I, I, I honor those who did. But um, I do know what it feels like to go through a, a metaphorical battle with someone yep. every single day and, and, the, and the kind of bond that forms.
0: Gosh, I wish we'd had the presence of mind to invite Carville to do this conversation with us because he's also been a wonderful Share Our Strength supporter and, of course, He's always a lot of fun. But in any case, when I saw a former White House communications director came up, I thought, well, that's, that's appropriate because this is kind of a, you know, a, a political uh, conversation. And although often we talk uh, with chefs or restaurateurs or people who have expertise in food, uh, our focus, of course, is hunger and the poverty that drives hunger. And this is a moment in which the politics of poverty uh, feels like it has. Shifted things that were you know like the child tax credit and you know your but be, between your experience as a journalist and as a um, as a political uh advisor uh when I think back about to something like the child tax credit, which had been talked about a little bit before and Michael Bennett in his campaign uh this year uh, made it a centerpiece. I
1: mean, like a <laughs>
0: It was basically unimaginable, right? It was unimaginable under any of the presidencies that we're familiar with, and it was unimaginable six weeks ago. And now it's the law of the land. You know, uh,
1: I was just as you were talking. I was thinking back. Um, we had a conversation with, with several of your supporters. What was it back in either late September or early October this yep, year? Yep. Um, and I remember at that point thinking, you know, it looked like it looked like Joe Biden was going to win, was going to become president. We weren't sure, but. I remember talking about the possibilities, given the crisis created by COVID, for massive change um, in, in Washington after the election. And then election came and it didn't go. It was lasted forever. Um, and it looked like it was going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for the Democrats, who on election night didn't do as well as people expected Setting aside the White House, you know, didn't do his lost seats in the House, uh, did not get control of the Senate. But the combination of Joe Biden winning and taking those two Senate seats in Georgia on exactly. um,
2: January 5th um, changed the world. Um, it did, You know, I, George, yeah. it's it's exactly what I've been thinking about just for weeks ever since this relief package came out and, you know, this, this incredible, um, you know, important. Uh, legislation for poor families and kids and how it would not have been possible had it not been for this, you know, razor thin margin in Georgia. And those two seats make it possible. And, you know, I just, I hope people realize just how every vote counts when you think about that legislation and how it affects this country.
1: I'm thinking back to my own state of mind in the month of December, again, and I have to say, I had a hard time wrapping my head around what actually was happening in Washington in in the White House at the time. It was one thing we knew that election night was going to be uh, a tough night, because we knew about this this, you know, sort of red surge at the beginning of the blue wave in the days after as the absentee votes were counted, the mail-in votes were counted. So I wasn't that surprised by anything that happened between election night and the Saturday where we all formally called the election. I never imagined that um President Trump would take things to the extent he did and rile up his supporters in the way that he did and lie about the election in the way that he did. Uh, But it it turns out, as horrific as that has been for our country and the events, as horrific as the events of January 6th were, there might have been a blessing there as well. I think he elected those Democratic senators in Georgia. Um, You know, clearly there was Stacey Abrams and her whole crew and Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff did great jobs in their campaigns Clearly, the state of Georgia is changing. Um, but that was an eminently winnable race for at least yeah. one of those Republican senators. But the fact that the the president was so focused on his own craziness and yeah. not focused on that, I think, was one of the things that tipped the balance on two Senate elections which have tipped the country.
0: Are you surprised that... Um with just the razor thin majority of one, the Vice President Kamala Harris, Biden is able to get done what he's getting done?
1: Not by the first package. I mean, I do think coming out of the crisis that everybody felt, you know, it's it's critical, especially, you know, when you look at, at how big the packages were last year, the Democrats understood that, uh, you know, you either hang together or hang separately and the country needed. it this massive relief package. I was, um, you know, pleasantly surprised by how even those more moderate Democratic senators were willing to um, put aside any kind of misgivings they might have in order to allow the president and his team to go as boldly as possible in the midst of the crisis. And that's where you really see the transformation. I mean, when you talk about the child tax credit, when you talk about the the investments that are being made in poverty programs across the board because of this COVID uh, package and the, the prospect that because these programs work so well, especially something like a child tax credit. Remember, it was the earned income tax credit was started by Ronald Reagan, and it's never gone away because of how effective it is. Um, and. The prospect that these can become permanent changes is is something I had not imagined.
0: Well, let me ask you to be a historian uh, and a journalist at the same time. Um, we, we had in conversation on the podcast uh, a week ago, Kathy Eden, who wrote uh, $2 a day, how to get by on nothing in America. And she was talking about how, you know, during the, the Clinton era, which obviously, you're expert in, uh, Clinton's program to, you know, quote, end welfare as we knew it. Uh, and comparing that to the child tax credit uh, as almost polar opposite approaches, d- does it feel like uh, progress to you? It feels like progress to me, but does oh. it feel like a, a sweep away from uh, where Clinton took us? Or does the pendulum just kind of go back and forth?
1: I think, I think it's a little bit more the back and forth. And I wonder... You know, the times are so different. Even you know, you think about the, the debates over the crime bill in 1994 as well, and how how that became a, a target during this presidential campaign uh, among uh, Democrats and some Republicans. When in fact, when it was it was relatively uh, actually extremely popular at the time. The, the Black Caucus were some of its strongest supporters. But I wonder if, given the politics of the 1990s, um, if what happened and I was against it at the time, but what happened with Clinton's welfare reform turned out to be a necessary precondition for what would ha- come now. Um, you know, in some ways, thank goodness, uh, this welfare change was made at a time when the economy for several years was doing quite well, late yeah. '90s, early 2000s, which I think um, helped cushion the blow of, of some of these uh, changes. But you you remember the politics of the time. The idea that people should you know be required uh, to to work and that that there was um, abuse of the welfare system was pretty rampant uh, at the time. What I most regret about the changes that were made then is that you know they also could have been more palatable if the back end of those promises had been kept you know that hmm. you know, yeah you can you can require people to work if you give them the means to do it if you pay for transportation and childcare. that makes it possible for people to go to work not 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 create a situation where if you're um, forced to choose where, where where to go to work you have to leave your kids either home alone or with childcare you can't afford <laughs> so that you know that just wasn't and that that wasn't done to the degree that was necessary at the time, and if you think about even you know some of the changes that were made in the food stamp programs and those reforms, those were uh, those were those were pretty harmful as well. But I think um, it shows how much the politics have shifted in this country in uh, twenty years. And you know, I, I think had we not gone through that experience, the support might not be as strong as it as it is today.
0: One of one of the things that we've observed in terms of the politics shifting and i've seen it just in share our strength supporters that's obviously just a, a small microcosm but uh, between the pandemic and uh everything that we've uh, learned about um structural racism and inequity uh, over the last year um since the really the george floyd uh killing it seems like a lot of our stakeholders who had always said, um, stay focused on feeding kids, and of course we are focused on feeding kids, have now also said, you know, we've got to get to some of the root causes of, of why these kids are hungry and why their families are, are struggling. Um, do you think, are those elements of the, of, the, uh, of the shift in politics or is there more to it than that?
1: Well, I think, I think there's a lot of that there. I, I'm not sure, I, I think that's happening in our culture as much as it is in our politics right now. And it's it, and, and in fact, I think the this is one of those areas where the culture is ahead of the, pol- the political system. I mean, if you if you take a look at the controversy in the last week over the, the Georgia voting law, the Georgia voting reform law. And listen, I think it's easy to overstate the harmful impact of that law. But it's pretty clear that it was motivated, uh, that, that its motivation was not to deal with a real problem. The problems that they're saying they are addressing were, were mostly made up mostly part of the big lie perpetrated by President Trump uh, over the course of the election about voting fraud. But if you see the reaction, you see the reaction of Major League Baseball, if you see the reaction of major corporations, if you see what public opinion is in the wake of that, even if some legislatures can pass a law like that, or it may be difficult to pass a broader um, reform to counter it at the national level, the country is, is heading in that direction. You know, big corporate America doesn't move unless they think their customer base is demanding it. And they clearly
2: see and feel that right now. Go
0: ahead.
2: No, I was going to say on this, you know, issue of um, the big lie I saw in the news last night and the Lieutenant Governor of um, Georgia talking about how this, you know, this restrictive voting is completely based on lies. And, you know, I guess I'm just, I'm wondering, you know where we are on this as a country. Are we ever going to get back to a place where the truth matters? What's the you know what's the role of the media in balancing this? How do you, um, you know, how, how how does the media really evolve to elicit the truth, and how far should they go?
1: It's 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 a great question. I should say. I mean, I have a lot of different thoughts on that. First of all, I do have to say. I mean, again, setting aside any partisan politics, the the the, the change in just the, the entire atmosphere of the country since the inauguration um, that has been spurred along simply by Donald Trump basically being silent is incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know speaking for myself, speaking to somebody who gets up at 2, every morning to deal with the news at 7, the first four hours of my day are completely different. You're not waking up thinking about how to deal with one of 25 different controversies real and made up right. or how to, how to construct coverage of a White House where literally on any given day um, ten to twelve lies were told about the most central issues that we we're trying to deal with and you know you're facing this debate every day. Do you ignore it? Do you counter it? Do you call it a lie? What does it mean when you call it a lie and does it does it? If if you call a lie a lie um, and 35% of the country believes you're being partisan
2: by calling a lie a lie, have you done any good? Yeah, Um, I mean, not becoming the story yourself, you know, you can't become the story. Yeah, it's crazy. Um,
1: But now trying to figure out how to deal with it afterwards, I think it leads to a lot of different judgments for us every single day in the media. Number one, listen, every president makes mistakes. Several presidents, you know shade the truth or, 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 or spin. I think one of the things we're dealing with now is that when President Biden is facing a controversy or facing, let's say, that the, the heartbreak of what's happening on the border, the crisis uh, on the border, or he misstates parts of what are in the Georgia law, how do we appropriately hold him and that White House accountable for that without appearing to lose our sense of proportion, without automatically... Um, equating it with things we have seen in the past in order to appear to be as tough as, as, as we were on, on the previous president That's something you have to uh, deal with um, One of the other things I've had to you know deal with on the Sunday show is how do you uh, deal with members of Congress people who are still active in politics who, Helps propagate the big lie. Are they persona non grata? Uh, are they when they come on only if they're questioned first about that, and if they're not willing to simply, you know, sort of start the conversation from a fact-based place, um, is it worth is it worth having that conversation at all? You know, these are questions we're struggling with every day now.
0: We always acknowledge those who help us produce the podcast, but I also want to make sure that I acknowledge those who make it possible. We are so grateful to our leading partner City and the incredible generosity that they've displayed since the coronavirus pandemic began. City and the City Foundation stepped up in a big way throughout this entire year. They contributed over 9 million dollars in 2020 through creative projects like a 2 million dollar match and a consumer activated donation program around Giving Tuesday. We're so grateful for that strong partnership and City has been a partner since 2014. We heard Grateful for their continued support, George. Uh, you know, just as a, um, if you can separate out being a journalist um, from your own feelings uh, in terms of what you just described about you know waking up at two uh, thirty in the morning and not having to deal with all the craziness. Uh, do you, do you miss it at all? Do you miss the? Was, was there an adrenaline rush that you missed, or you're you're glad to leave behind?
1: No. The the short answer is no. The longer answer is that. Listen, the last four to five years were were um, high pressure, were difficult to cover. I don't think we did it. I don't think we always did a very good job at all. Uh, they were incredibly stressful, but the work felt vital. Uh, so, um, and that was fulfilling. And like I felt like you know every day I was going to work, and it was important for me. Again, not to act in a partisan way, but to. Stand up for truth and to stand up for fact-based journalism and to make sure people, you know, whether they wanted to hear it or not, had the facts they needed to start every day. And what was an incredibly tumultuous time. Um, so, you know, even but but even though that felt vital, I think all of the benefits that come uh, from that from the changes in Washington over the election. Um, more than make up uh, for whatever uh, adrenaline rush I might have felt on certain days uh, going to work in the last four years.
2: But George, just one more point on this, because I I find it so, you know, I watch the news and I just go crazy sometimes, you know, with some of the blatant lies that we've heard. And I I mean, do you feel like the public wants the truth? Or like, are they happy to hear what they want to hear. And in a way, I kind of think they are, you know, we all are, because you know, half of us watch one set of news cast, you know, broadcasts and the other half of us watch the other half. So well, that's, you know, just, that's
1: that's the bigger problem. I mean yeah. I end up thinking that in terms of my job, which is so trying to broadcast, um, is that at some level I have to do what you know I believe is right and not and not worry about the consequences. Yeah, Um, Like, I I know for a fact, I mean, it may, I hope at some point it'll start to change, but I know for a fact that, um, let's say during the Trump era, if we did a piece where we pointed out where the president wasn't telling the truth, that by definition, 25 to 35% of the country um, would think that we're the liars and he's telling the truth. Um, now, the truth is also that, and this goes to a point that you were alluding to as well, that for the most part, that 25 to 35% probably wasn't watching us anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It was from an right. entirely different place. Yeah. In, yeah. In, in a completely hermetically sealed bubble all the time. And we just have to keep doing our job Accepting that fact and hoping that over time you can speak to that 10, 12, 14, 20 percent that is honestly in the middle and looking for the facts and looking for the information and willing to keep open minds about issues. Um, and yeah. and, and on, on that point, we're, we're doing a, a piece this, this weekend about a, a, a project being run by Dave Isay of, of public radio who's trying to create conversations uh, across the political divide all across the country right now to get at that one problem of people only talking to those who reinforce what they already believe.
0: Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about that, because, you know, one of the ways Debbie has phrased this in the past is she's she's, she and I have often talked about uh, in Debbie's words, you know, is it possible to kind of put the poison back in the bottle? Is there so much that's gone out into our ecosystem that it, it's just going to be there? And I've, you know, uh, thought probably narrowly and parochially that with the right kind of political leadership and a change in tone, uh, that could eventually we could get back to a better place. But there is a, and I was talking about this with a friend who's an editor at The New Yorker the other day who was saying that, um, you know, politicians are part of it, but the other part of it is, is the media. And it's, you know, not so much the, you know, the networks or the mainstream media, but between social media and cable, uh, will they let us, uh, and do they have, uh, are they able to co- kind of combat the economic interest and clickbait of, uh, of, of divisive stories? How do we, how do we deal with that?
1: I, I mean, I, I think it's an existential problem. I mean, I think, I mean, if, I don't watch Fox news every night. I try to check in every once in a while just to get a sense of what is being talked about. But, um, you know, who's the most popular person in, in, in conservative media right now. It's probably Tucker Carlson. And he just, you know, I believe, uh, puts out a form of propaganda. He probably believes the same thing about me every day, but yeah. Um,
0: I keep thinking there's nothing that's going to shock me anymore. And, you know, when you talk about Tucker Carlson, George, the the night after Biden gave his first primetime address, uh, I switched to Fox News to see what was going on. And Tucker Carlson and his guests were talking about how Biden was trying to take away the 4th of July from us, that he was going to decide, you know, Biden was going to decide for us who gets to celebrate the 4th of July. And of course, Biden said nothing like that. But when I turned it on, it was just shocking to me that you could have such an alternative universe, you know, narrative going on and i just well, don't know I how mean, you, you address know, that
1: you had you still have i think the number is i mean the polls are changing perhaps a little bit but 70 percent of republicans who believe that donald trump was the victim of voter fraud you know that, that that's a you know kind of astonishing um you know they'll accept that he's the, the president now but they they believe that you know that it wasn't on the level um, and that's just wrong. That's just not true in, in any way, yeah. shape or form. To go to your question, though, about economic incentives, that's part of the, the problem of our fractured world, though, now. To make a lot of money in media now, it's not like the old days where the, you know, the news, Walter Crockett and his colleagues were reaching 70 million people a night, you know, or uh, you can be the top dog in cable news every night. With an audience of four or five million people yeah yeah and you're and that's an in, incredibly lucrative uh, niche right now and all you need to do and it's kind of picking up on the lesson of, of of president trump is pay attention and tend to that base and make sure they stay loyal and that's a money maker
0: yep yeah. okay we need folks to watch abc news <laughs> <laughs> And our and our friend George Stephanopoulos, who we've been talking to. George, just to take this back to um, some of the politics that directly affect the work of uh, Share Our Strength. You know, we're, we're obviously really eager and excited about some of the things that Biden administration is doing, particularly around SNAP. There's a, a whole set of uh, waivers and flexibilities that have made it easier during the pandemic to uh, feed kids and families that we think will, you know, some of them at least will become permanent and one of the paradoxes of the entire pandemic from from my point of view has been that uh, although in one sense our progress was you know reversed by almost 10 years we've lost about 10 years of progress in terms of reducing hunger in america we were getting particularly with childhood hunger as you know uh, we were getting really really close uh on, on you know being able to say that although there's unfortunately still poverty and there's still food insecurity Uh, At least most kids are getting three meals a day. The pandemic erased all that. But at the same time, I think it in some ways affirmed one of our core messages, which is that this is a solvable problem. We had hundreds of thousands of Americans, you know, organizations like ours usually look for donors. Donors started to look for us. The stories that your network did and that others did, showing the long lines at food banks, raising awareness about the issue of hunger. Uh, helping to to convey that you know some 40% of the people in line at food banks were there for the first time that never experienced this or needed this type of help before it created a, a, a you know a mobilization of literally hundreds of thousands maybe millions of Americans who said uh, I want to do something about this it's unacceptable because and because we all learned. we all
1: learned it. how possible it was as you were just saying that somebody you know who's—it's not—it's not people who haven't been working. It's not people who've been irresponsible. It's not people who are somehow other. It's it, when when a crisis like this hits, it hits everyone, and you see how frat, how quickly people can fall from a solid middle-class life into something very close to poverty and That's having to. Right hunger. And I, think, and I think that definitely was brought home to people. I think the other point, this is in sort of picking up back to the beginning of our conversation uh, a half hour ago, um, you're more expert than I am in knowing all of the different things that are happening now inside below the radar in the Biden administration that are going to, beyond the COVID relief package, they're going to create real lasting change for thousands, if not millions of families over time, and that's the difference a president makes. Um, it's it's not just what the president is talking about every day. It's not just what what he or she is able one day she is able to pass through uh, the Congress. It is what their army of appointees are doing in the Department of Agriculture, in the Department of Health and Human Services, in the Office of Management and Budget, in the Department of Education, every single day to make the kind of incremental regulatory changes uh to have the kind of oversight that makes all the difference in the world over time you know you have eight four years is one thing eight years is 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 exponentially um creates even more exponential change but those kind of those day-to-day the day-to-day work of the people that a president brings to washington um, it creates even more change in the things you read about every day. Yeah,
0: and in this case, people this. who are you know studied in in government, experienced in it, know how it works, want to use it, want to pull yeah. Yeah. the levers. I'm thinking of, as you're talking, George, I'm thinking of a woman named Stacy Dean who for many years, all the years i would known her, was at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and one of the leading advocates of policies uh, affecting hunger and poverty. She's now the Assistant Secretary uh, at USDA for Nutrition. And you know she, she probably won't spend more than 10 minutes with Biden in four years, but she will be responsible for doing exactly what you described, which is making these programs work. And it'll, it'll be night and day from what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you think, uh, what's the risk of, uh, as I'm thinking about today's news, about uh, the part the Senate parliamentarians ruling that uh, reconciliation can be used as a uh, a tool a second time in this budget year, everybody always thought it could only be used once, and it only requires fifty one votes
1: instead of sixty. Been, it has been done before, but yeah, it's not it's not common practice.
0: But yeah, but rarely. So, I mean, do you think is Biden at uh, at risk of overreaching? Um, how does he, if you're President Biden, how do you keep your majority together?
1: That's the, the big question. And what, what, what's in the Washington Post this morning? Joe Manchin, who did not yeah. vote for the COVID relief package, as an op-ed saying he's against any changes in the filibuster and taking a shot at the idea of using reconciliation more than once. It, it shows the tension, right? Um, on the one hand, uh, it's a politics porn of necessity. Uh, you're not going to get Republican votes for a tax increase. Not going to happen. When I spoke with Biden two weeks ago, He, he even sort of accepted that um, right at the top of the conversation. So your only hope of getting anything done is by either going much smaller and even that might not do it because, you know, we're seeing, you know, you could, you could see the way the politics um, play, play out here. Um, And I think we're, a lot of Republicans look at the the landscape and say, if we just say no to everything now, we have a good shot of getting back the House in 2022 and and maybe getting the Senate back as well. So maybe that's the best course for us at this point. So uh, even though I think you know Biden did offer you know the hope of bipartisanship when he was running, it may not be a very realistic hope at this time. So the only way to get something done is by is through this reconciliation process, but the very fact of trying to use reconciliation puts those moderate Democrats like Manchin and others, Kershyn Sinema, in a, in, a, in a tight spot. Um, you kind of hope that in the end you they, that this is just sort of normal politics and they'll be able to negotiate it out. But it may be um, on the legislative level, getting anything, getting much more in a, in a big way may not be that possible right now. Yeah.
0: When, it's it's got to get harder.
1: Yeah.
0: It was hard. For, it was hard in the beginning. And now I think it, it it even gets harder. And you mentioned taxes, right? Once you start, you know, not just spending, but then having to pay for it, that that really changes the politics, yeah,
1: even though we haven't paid for anything in an
0: awful long time. So <laughs> right. gonna,
1: and and, a and nice if day.
2: you, and, and if, and if you consider if, if, you know, Biden did negotiate some things away that he didn't want to just to get, a bipartisan deal is that something that we would expect you know what happened on the other side when that time comes i just i just feel like there's, no, there's got to be a time before. there's got to be a time where you know that, that we come together around things for the future because if we don't do it now it's just going to be like this you know whoever is in power is going to be like this forever
1: and these investments in combating hunger in in broader infrastructure if you, if you can't do it for that what can you do it for yeah right? exactly and this is something that everybody agrees the, the the needs are there everybody agrees we have to modernize everything about right our and infrastructure
2: and and, and the, the sense is that the that the republicans are, the republicans are going to say no to everything but the democrats might have done that too um, and yeah. have done that too so you know is it the individuals when you think back you know 20 years ago and and you think how the 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 two parties got along much better. I mean, is it the individuals that are currently there? Is it the sign of the times? Is it a combination think, of both?
1: It's, it's a little. It's it got to be a little bit of a combination. But I think yeah. it's mostly structural. I mean, the parties used to used used to have a lot of northern moderate Republicans and a lot of southern conservative Democrats. <laughs> and w- when when each party was a bigger tent, it was a force for bipartisan cooperation.
2: Right. Right. This
1: doesn't exist anymore. I mean. Right. The, the, The moderates have been driven out of the Republican Party and for the most part of the Democratic Party as well. They're they're a sign of of where the country is right now.
0: George, last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, which uh, came to me from a conversation I was having with my friend, Alan Casey, uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, Alan was the co-founder of City Year and uh, one of the uh, godfathers of AmeriCorps, uh, which of course came to life in the Clinton administration. Um, And Alan is hoping that, just given the way everybody is thinking big right now, it might be a big moment for national service and to scale national service. I know something that's also something that you've followed and, you know, we instrumental in, in the early days. Uh, and it's, and it's a way to, you know, bring people together. It's bipartisan, it's nonpartisan, it's problem solving at the community level. Uh, any advice that you would have for advocates of national service on where to take this next?
1: You know, I, I, I... I'm I'm very attracted to the idea that some that we should have something compulsory, for a year, you know, somewhere around high school and college age. It, it, that's not realistic in the current environment. Um, you know, if 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 for example, even the president saying, let's hope we can all get together. Uh, on July Fourth, right. women saying this is a mandate for women to decide whether you can celebrate July Fourth And not. Can you imagine anything like a broad national service program that has some conditionality attached to it? Doesn't seem very likely to me uh, right now. But it, but again, this is something that is happening in the culture. You're seeing young people do more and more. You're seeing it's become common now. For you know, not just for you know things like City Year, but look at Teach for America. That's become a very common path. For, for young people just out of college to spend a year or two, which is exactly what it was designed uh, to do. And I just, it's something we all encourage with our kids. And, and I, I hope it continues, but I think this is gonna be one where the the people are gonna lead the politicians on this one.
2: George, I, I have one more before we go, if that's sure. okay. Um, you're my source uh, for news every morning at seven for years and years, uh, never miss you. But I was wondering uh, what your sources, you know, beyond the, the ABC news team, which I'm sure provides you with a lot of stuff, but where else do you get your, your news? Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and just like, you know, very briefly to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how you prepare. You mentioned getting up at two in the morning, which is unimaginable for most people, but you know, kind of just, what else I do you do? <laughs> What's that?
1: I go to bed pretty early. Yeah. Bed by eight is the slogan in our house. Okay. Um, but uh, you no, know, the first part of my, I get up around 2.30 and I meditate and then I, I read. And really, the reason I get up that early is I don't need to do that all for what we're doing on GMA that day. But I spend the first two hours of my day reading the news. I read um, you know, all the major papers are in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, some of the tabloids, are, are hand, a variety of, of websites I'll check in every morning, you know, from the Drudge Report to Politico, to the Atlantic, to National Review, uh, to Bloomberg, CNBC, just to get a wide range sampling of yeah. where the news is every morning. That's really, that is literally the first two hours of my day every day before I get into the actually producing what we're going to do on air uh, that day. And that, that way I know that I started the day knowing at least as much as I think I can about what's going on. Right.
2: Right. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And
1: then, you know, I, I I refresh, refresh myself on that pretty much all through the day, the time I'm not talking to people or, you know, being with my family or is, 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 is a lot of, is a lot of reading, uh, each day. And I, 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 I am not a, uh, I don't generally go to Twitter for news. I don't. I'm really not on social media uh, mm-hmm. that much. That's maybe by habit, but also uh, it's a way of trying to to not be completely uh, reactive to minute by minute uh, developments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, but I, I try to read pretty widely for. I would say it probably totals out to four to five hours a day.
2: It's a lot. Thanks.
0: Well, I'm jealous, George, because my my wife will let me get up at 2.30 in the morning, but she won't let me go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. So (laughs) that's not a good combination. (laughs) Um,
1: It comes after years of doing this. It's not really much of a choice. And you you sort of... know my schedule because some of the events we've had to do, you know, kind of like at eight twenty, my eyes just close. So there's nothing I can do anyway.
0: <laughs> what happens to you on weekends? Do you have to try to rejigger your, your body clock or do you just stick with it?
1: I pretty much stick with it, but you know, big, you know, I might sleep until four, four thirty, but you know what? I like it. I, you know, this is just, you know, you sort of gravitate to what works for you to me that, that those early morning hours where I, I get to, you know, learn and read and think are very precious.
0: Yeah, there's nothing like that. Um, We've been talking with George Stephanopoulos, who's been a great friend and supporter of Share Our Strength in our No Kid Hungry campaign. And of course, as a journalist that uh, so many of us trust and rely on to really learn what's going on in our country uh, and around the world. George, thanks so much for taking the time.
2: Great conversation. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Uh, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I want to thank the team at Share Our Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign and thank my sister, Debbie Shore, who always makes this podcast better, Kelly Griffin of our staff and our producer, Paul Whittle at District Productive. Uh, you can listen to other episodes at com and rate us and rank us and share with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore.